I'm a PK, and so growing up, I was very involved in the youth group at my dad's church. Are the youth in here, are y'all meet, are they meeting over there? Some of you, they're over there. Um, well, I'm sure some of them would probably be familiar with this, or if y'all grew up in church, maybe you're familiar with this. But there was this game, most appropriate game to play in church, by the way, called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, because... <laughs> That's what you do in youth group. And so uh, played Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. And the premise of this game is that there would be four people up on stage, and three of them would tell a lie, and one of them would tell the truth. And as the uh, audience, you were supposed to gauge and guess which one was actually telling the truth. And for some reason, I don't know why, Pastor Mark, but the, always the pastor's kid was the best liar. Why is that? Well, I'm a PK, so that would be me. Um, but I don't know if uh, with the world that we live in today, if you've ever had to view different opinions, different information, and have to guess what is true. And you have to sit there and figure out as you're scrolling Facebook or as you're watching the news, uh, you're inundated with all of this information and you're sitting there as the viewer playing liar, liar, pants on fire on a daily basis trying to figure out who's telling the truth. And this is an issue not only for us as Christians, but just the the culture we live in today. And so now there's fact checkers to help you, to help you. Or there's community notes now on X. If you're cool, you'd know that that's now the name. But I don't know about you, but it's hard sometimes to tell what is true. And as Christians, as wise Christians, we have to be very selective of what we receive and what we believe. And we live in this world of information overload. And so as Christians, we're inundated with competing ideas, with conflicting information. And so how are you going to know what is true. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're not, just act like you are so everybody thinks you're spiritual. As Christians, you can write this down, as Christians, we do not want to believe everything. We want to believe what is orthodox. I'm a bit of a nerd, and so orthodox. Maybe uh, you're not familiar with the word orthodox, or you're thinking of the Orthodox Church, like capital O Orthodox Church, or the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and while they've used that term, orthodox or orthodoxy predates those orthodox uh, uh, denominations. The term orthodoxy is a term meaning right teaching, right thought, right opinion. And so as Christians, we don't want to be wrong about what we believe. We want to be right about what we believe. And especially in the time we live in today, where there are those who claim to speak truth, there are those who claim to be churches or claim to be pastors, claim to be entire denominations that are moving further and further away from historical Christian truth. And yet they present themselves as the ones declaring truth. And a lot of people are deceived. And and I'm thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for your pastors being a place that speaks the truth that's needed in today's culture, that's needed in today's Christian environments, 
that we have churches that are bold and willing to speak the truth even when it's out of favor with our culture, to not bend to the will of culture, but to stand for the principles that Christianity has always been founded on and be unmoved in the face of opposition. And so I'm grateful for Grace Church being here for that purpose, for for Pastor Mark being willing to be bold and take a stand for the things that are true in Scripture and, and not be passive in this world we live in, but being bold and active to speak the truth. We need that. And, 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 you know, Ovation Church isn't the only church that does that, or Grace Church isn't the only. There's other great churches in Burleson and in this area and in this region, and, and we're just part of the body of Christ who is standing for truth. And and we need that. And it's important, possibly more important now than in previous generations, especially in the West. So orthodoxy, right teaching, right thought, right opinion. We don't want to believe everything as Christians. We want to believe what is orthodox. And we may not know everything about God. I've been pastoring for going on 15 years now. And I know I'm a young whippersnapper. Some of you in here, some of you are thinking I'm old and I got this gray. And I know you have to listen to me. I can say whatever I want the more gray I get, by the way. You just have to agree with me. That's the way it works. Um, but with, with us, we don't know everything about God. The more I study Scripture and the longer I've been a pastor the more I realize, the less I know. In fact, right now I'm in seminary. Uh, I'm 44, right? I'm 44, I think. Yes, I think I'm 44. And I'm in seminary, and I'm learning now things that I've never learned before. I love reading books, and I love reading books from like really old dead people. That's actually kind of my favorite. And so I'm learning a lot. And the more I learn, the further I get from the end of God. And there's more of God to know. There's more of God to discover. And so we may not know everything about God, but understand this. What we do know about God, we had better be right about. Okay? So if we only know 10% about God, then it's very important that 10% is accurate. And so knowing truth matters. Uh, I believe that the church stands for truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing to Pastor Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. This is important. The way we behave is important. In the house of God. What is the house of God? He describes that. And he says, which is the church of the living God, get this, a pillar and buttress of truth. The the church stands for truth. The, The church should be a defense that is helping to guard and protect truth in this generation. That's what the church has been in past generations. And the church that is today, the capital C church that that you're a part of, that I'm a part of, we are standing on the shoulders of the previous generations that have protected the truth and handed it down to us. And the church stands for truth. So the truth of Christianity 
is not something that we get to decide today. Okay, this is important because this is a problem that's going on within some denominations, within some Christian movements, is trying to redefine what Christianity is so it's more palatable to the culture we live in, so that it's more acceptable and more tolerant and more friendly to those that aren't Christians. And and it's important to be a witness. It's important to be evangelical or uh, evangelistic, and, and it's important to want to reach people far from God. But what are we going to reach them with if we lose the faith? And so Christianity is not something that you and I get to decide today and make up. There's not going to be a council that gets together and says, okay, what is the Christianity 2.0 going to look like? That's not Christianity. In fact, this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves. This is what believers did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So what the apostles are teaching, they devoted themselves to that teaching, that doctrine, that that set of beliefs that the apostles lived with Jesus, experienced Jesus, received from Jesus, and what those apostles are now duplicating in others. And these people, these believers, continued in the apostles' teaching. And that's still going on today. We're not deciding new teaching that needs to be taught. We're still continuing in the apostles' teaching. This is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It says, So then, brothers, what are we supposed to do? Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letters. They're supposed to stand firm and hold to the traditions. Now, um, depending on how you grew up, that word traditions may trigger you a little bit. Uh, For me, that's a bit of a triggering word because I grew up very charismatic, very spontaneous in worship, grew up word of faith. And so the idea of tradition of men was like, (laughs) right? So if there's a tradition, it's got to be bad. Tear it down. We don't want traditions. We just want the Holy Spirit. And while there's something good with that, and I'm not trying to bash that, but what I'm saying is what we see in Scripture right here are there some traditions you don't let go of. There are some traditions that you hold tightly. There's some traditions that are handed down to us as Christians that we continue to live out in life. And this isn't about worship style. It isn't about whether or not you have fog or lights or, or a traditional church or a contemporary church. That's not what this is about. It's not about uh, stylistic of our worship. It's about the message that never changes. The, the way you deliver that message can, tain, can change. You know, s- display it in the class clouds with laser lights. Good for you. Be as uh, modern and technology driven as you want, but do not lose sight of the traditions that we're supposed to stand firm on and hold to as believers that we've received and we carry on. We didn't decide it and make it up for ourselves. We don't, we don't go to scripture and say, well, what does it mean to me today in this environment? And now I'm going to twist it and make it fit what I want to agree with me and feel good about my life. That's not what we do. We don't get to decide what Christianity is. Christianity was decided a very long time ago. 
In fact, uh, there's, there's a lie right now that's very popular. If you scroll on TikTok or social medias, then you're going to see this where there's a very common idea that the Christian beliefs were developed over the centuries and that the Bible has been rewritten time and time again throughout different generations to, to form what we know today as Christianity. Can I tell you, that, that's hogwash. That's absolutely hogwash. It, it is absolutely uh, mentally dishonest to play those gymnastics in your mind, to, to twist history to mean that. And there's a lot written about the Christian faith that we can go to as Christians to know that the Christianity beliefs that we have today are the same things that the apostles taught. We, we actually can know that. It's documented. And so we don't make it up today. We can actually hold to the traditions that we've been taught, as Paul says, either by the spoken word or by the letters. We hold to those traditions. One thing that's important is the idea of authorial or author's authorial intent. What did the author intend? And this is where a little bit of Bible study, more so than Bible reading, takes place. Where you try to understand and get your head around the context of not just the verses before and the verses after, the chapter before, the chapter after, but in more of a greater context of the culture and who was reading it, how they would have understood it, and the words that are being used that the author knew that when they read it, this is what they would be thinking. And so you want to get to that to know what does the author really mean? This is what I believe, is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Does anybody believe that in here? Is that the Bible? And you, Yes, that is true. Man, I love this response. This is great. If you see people in, that go to Ovation Church out and about, encourage them to respond during my message, okay? Would you do that? And then also let them know that I'm funny sometimes and they should laugh at my corny jokes. Just let them know that. So the author's intent matters. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by my opinion of the word of God. So I need to know what the author meant, and this is what we believe as Christians. We believe what the author wrote is what the Holy Spirit wanted to write. It's God-inspired. It's the Holy Spirit is the author. And, And so... If what the author intended is what the Holy Spirit intended, that should be pretty important to us. And so we want to get back to that, because that's where faith comes from. You know, one of my pet peeves, is it okay if I complain a little bit as a pastor? Can, can I do that just a little bit? One of my pet peeves is uh, small groups and Bible studies, where people that don't know the Bible talk about the Bible, and, and then they usually ask this question, they'll read a passage or read a, a parable, and then they'll say one of the worst questions. They'll say, what does this parable mean to you? It's like, that's a horrible question. What did the parable mean to the person that wrote it? What did the parable mean to the people that heard it? What did the parable mean to Jesus when he spoke it? Like, that's a much better question, because there's power in that. What I make up about it, there's not much power in. And so we want to get to the Word of God because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. There's right now a bunch of deconstructionists. I don't know if you've heard that term, deconstructionists. People that have maybe grown up in the church, grown up in Christian families, and they're deconstructing their faith. 
And the, the idea is very destructive. It is just tear it down. They don't want anything to do with God. They're going to be agnostic. They're going to be atheist. And there's quite a big movement on social media of people very vocal about their deconstruction. And they often will even call themselves ex-evangelicals, that they used to be in evangelicals, and now they're ex-evangelicals. And they're very passionate about this. And, and they tear apart the Bible. They tear, about, tear apart church. And so if you go to uh, TikTok or YouTube, you, you'll, you'll hear about these people and you'll see these people and they will use scripture and they'll twist it and they'll say it means something it doesn't mean. Or right now there's uh, through social media, there are critical Bible scholars that are very popular where they don't believe Jesus is the son of God. They don't believe that he was crucified and raised from the dead. They don't believe the tenets of Christian faith. And yet they call themselves a Bible scholar and they call themselves a Christian. And they talk about their ideas and people like it. And people comment how amazing and wonderful this is. And so it's a, actually a really big issue, but the, the problem is, is you can really take Scripture and twist it pretty easily. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you know this, but I read the Bible, and I'm sure cats are evil. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Cats are demonic. Um, I know some of y'all looking at me weird. You've got a cat. Come up for deliverance afterwards. We'll pray. <laughs> and, and why would I say that based on the Bible? Well, I don't know if you've read Revelation, um, but there's a mark of the beast in Revelation, right? You, you know this, and, and there's a mark of the beast, and there's 666, and we know that six is the number of man because six falls short of God, which is seven, which rhymes with heaven, and so seven means, you know, and so six is, is the number of man, and so then 666 is just uh, the trinity of evil, and so if you've got 666, you got three sixes, and if you add three plus six, it equals nine. Cats have nine lives. <laughs> but, and, and as ridiculous as that is, you follow the logic. And so people can go to Scripture, and they can make up and, and do that, and people fall for it. And it is so important that you have a good church. It is so important that you have pastors that care about truth. It is so important that you've got a church here that goes to Scripture, that, that, found, that, 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 that bases uh, everything they teach and everything that is preached here on Scripture to be faithful to Scripture and to steward well those uh, traditional uh, doctrines and historic Christianity that was handed to us is now being taught to this generation and the next. That's important. That's needed because, guess, that's not everywhere. That's not every church. That's not every pastor. And so we should value it and celebrate it when we see it. It's easy to apply our own personal convictions and perspectives, and then we claim that it's sound doctrine, and it's not. Paul writes to Timothy on this issue and is really warning Timothy in this pastoral letter of the dangers of false teaching. Um, and, and within church history, we see that early church history, the, the greatest threat to church, the greatest threat to the earliest Christians was persecution. And we see that throughout uh, the book of Acts. We see that through uh, the epistles. We see that early church was this outside persecution. 
And it was very dangerous time for Christians. But as Christianity moves on, the greater threat wasn't outside persecution, but it was internal false teaching. It was internal apostasy. Those who claimed Christ, those who call themselves Christian, going to these churches and pulling people away from the teaching of the apostles. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and warning him of this. And this is what he says in Timothy 1 verse 9. He says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. You're not making this up yourself. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to what? Rebuke those who contradict it. So the Christian belief was not developed over many millennia or over many decades or many centuries. Here in the New Testament, as early as it gets, we have Christians defending what Christians believe. It was already known. It was already established. One of the things that Titus was dealing with and the early church was dealing with, even a couple decades after Paul wrote this to Titus, was Judaizers. Judaizers were ones that would claim to be Christian, but would say you still have to follow the Mosaic law. They would claim to be Christian and say it's great to be a Christian and it's good to accept Jesus, but you also have to add following the law. You have to add all of the festivals and daily worship and the sacrifices and that whole system. You can't move away from that. You can have Jesus, but you have to have this too. And that was one of the things Paul is warning about. Another thing was Gnosticism. Gnosticism or the early stages of Gnosticism was developing in the first century and second century, really came to a big head in the third century. This is what Gnosticism believed, and, and we see it even today in certain ways. Gnosticism believed that there is a separation between what is spiritual and what is natural, and what is natural, what is physical, is bad, and spiritual is good. And, and so that's one of the tenets uh, uh, of Gnosticism. And so what it did is it separated those and said, you can be a good Christian spiritually, but then it's separate from your physical life so you can live however you want. And it doesn't affect your spiritual life. And so you want to go to the temples with the prostitutes? Go for it. You want to be involved in the pagan worship stuff? Go for it. Why? Because that's all physical. It doesn't matter. It's all bad anyway. Spiritual is what matters. And so as long as you believe right, then you can live however you want. Yeah, that, that's no different than people today that are going to say, I'm going to call myself a Christian, but then a Christian means I can live however I want. God loves me. He's like my lovesick boyfriend that just can't get enough of me, so he's going to, you know, ugu all over me no matter how I live. It doesn't quite work that way. And so, so these same issues that are going on then, we actually still deal with today as a church. As Christianity, there's still these false ideas that are coming in. And Christian doctrine didn't develop over time. It was established from the very beginning. This is what Paul goes on if we continue in Titus. The next verse says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, those Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul's bold about this. 
Paul is saying, hey, church, protect the truth. Hey, church, don't let these strange ideas and things come along that are going to confuse people and pull people away from the things that we've taught you. Protect it. Preserve it. Guard over it, church. Paul's passionate about that. And then he goes on to say in Timothy or in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let me ask you, where do we find sound doctrine? How, how do we determine sound doctrine? So it's very clear here it's an important thing. So where does it come from? Where do we know this? I love church history, and like I said, I can be a bit of a geek and nerd when it comes to the Bible. But what Christians believe, it did not develop or grow over two, three hundred years. Sound doctrine was taught, known, and defended from the beginning. And so I love looking at church history. One of the guys in church history is a guy named Ignatius. If you've never heard of Ignatius, Ignatius lived from the year 34 to 107. And so he was a young contemporary of the apostles. And and so Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended around 33, 34. And so he was born in 34. So he was right there at the beginning of the earliest parts of Christianity. And we have his writings and what he said about Christianity so we can know how Christians responded to the sound doctrine and the teaching. He was the second archbishop of Antioch after the apostle Peter. He was apostle Peter's protege. He studied under apostle Peter. And he wrote scathingly about those who were Judaizers and trying to warp Christianity. And this is what he says. It is outrageous to utter the name of Jesus Christ and live in Judaism. He was sure of what he believed. He was sure of what Christianity was. And he defended it. There's uh, uh, some writings of his letters where it says that he calls upon congregations to close their ears to what he regards as antiquated myths since they are worthless. For if we continue to live in accordance with Judaism, those adding the law of Moses to Christianity, we admit that we have not received grace. He was sure of what Christianity stood for. He was sure of what Christianity believed. It wasn't being developed over time. And we see people who have taken these truths of Christianity. The orthodox belief of Christianity. They were so sure of it. They were so confident in it that they're willing to give their lives for it. And my heart breaks sometimes for Americanized Western Christianity that has sometimes been warped into comfort and feeling good about ourselves and come to church and it's a self-help TED talk and you splatter in a couple scriptures in there. And you can come to church for 10 years and you can know the five steps of a successful marriage and the 12 steps to financial freedom, but you can't defend the Christian faith. 
But throughout church history, we see Christians who knew the orthodox, historic teaching of Christianity, and they believed it to their core so much that they're willing to give up their lives for it. And many did, and many have. And even today, there's suffering Christians all over the world that as we gather in freedom and sing beautiful songs and don't have to worry about being killed as we gather, that's not the case for everybody that's a Christian today. I think of Polycarp. If you don't know who Polycarp is, Polycarp is one of the disciples of the Apostle John. And so the Apostle John, Jesus' BFF, if you will, He's, John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, sitting there, it's John that's leaning against Jesus. And so John very intimately knows Jesus, knows truth. Polycarp studied under John. And John took what Jesus had taught him and given him of the Christian faith, And John passes that to Polycarp. Polycarp lived from 68 A.D. to 156 A.D. And at 88 years old, he's put on trial for being a Christian. He's put on trial for claiming the name of Christ, that he is the risen Messiah, And that salvation is only through him. And that he was God made man. And the political persecution that he endured from that came to a head at 88 years old and he's sentenced to death. And the account of his martyrdom is recorded by historians. And Polycarp, as he's approached by people, being told about his sentence. This is how he responded. He said, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake. But Polycarp stopped them. And this is what he said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And then he prays aloud, and the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed, and the chronicler of his martyrdom said it was not his burning flesh, but his baking bread or his gold and silver refined in a furnace." This account concluded by saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. He is even spoken of by heathen in every place. Polycarp knew what he believed. Polycarp didn't have to wonder if this Christianity stuff was real, if he was making it up himself. Polycarp knew the historic Christian truths that were passed on to him. And he was willing to die for it. 
One of the things throughout church history that I really appreciate are some of the creeds that encapsulize the Christian faith in a succinct way. Rather than reading all of Scripture to try to determine that, they've made them in a way that they can be memorized and passed on easily. And a creed isn't the inerrant Word of God, but it's a message about the Word of God that highlights the points that matter the most. And in the early church, most people couldn't read. In the early church time, their illiteracy was massive and There weren't books and Bibles and scrolls to easily get out. And so having a creed was the easiest way to spread and to share the orthodox truth of Christianity. And so one of them that I like is the Apostles' Creed. The Lexham Bible Dictionary uh, uh, defines the Apostles' Creed this way. The Apostles' Creed represents a set of uncompromisable core beliefs for Christians. As such, the core tradition of it is also found in the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, like all creeds, function like a filter for orthodoxy. It indicates what is and what is not Christian. It is a public profession of belief in historic Christianity. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Apostles' Creed reads like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. What, what a beautiful testament of what Christians believe. And here's the thing is that this short, succinct set of Christian beliefs separates Christians from Muslims, separates Christians from certain denominations that would claim to be Christian. Because if they don't believe this, they're not Christian. And here's the thing is that one of the ways to look at Christianity is kind of like the borders of a nation. So we've got America. America is defined. This is what a nation is, these borders. If you're in that nation, well, like me, if I travel, I need a passport. If I have a passport, I get back into the U.S. When I'm in the U.S., I can drive to Michigan to see my grandparents without a passport because I'm inside the borders. And so similarly, Christianity has borders, and there can be some different denominations. There can be different beliefs. There can be variety. There can be different expressions of worship. There's a lot of open-hand beliefs that we have as Christians. But there are some closed ones that say you're either in these borders or not. And that's important. It's important in Scripture. It's important in early church. And it's important today. You don't get to believe whatever you want and call yourself a Christian. 
There are certain things that you have to believe to be a Christian. And Christianity is a confession. As believers, we confess these things to be true. We can't prove it scientifically. We can give historical evidence. We can give scriptural evidence. But ultimately, it's by faith. Ultimately, as a Christian, I'm going to see these things and I'm going to confess them as being true. And we have a confessional Christianity. I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The author of Hebrews tells us to let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is a confession that we have, that I confess to believe these things about Jesus. I confess to believe these things that make Christianity Christian. And it's by that faith that I confess it to be true. And that's what the church has always done. The church has always lived by faith to confess these things to be true. And one of the things that excites me the most about looking at the history of these things is that the same beliefs that Polycarp had and was willing to die for are the same beliefs I have today in Burleson, Texas in 2023, and it hasn't changed and that God was faithful to them, and he'll be faithful to me. And the same beliefs that have carried the church, protected the church, preserved the church for 2,000 years, it's the same things that's going to preserve the church and protect the church for another 2,000 years. And it's not me today, this weekend, deciding what Christianity is. I'm part of a universal church of every believer from all times, from all locations around the world, in harmony with my Father in heaven, celebrating him, serving him, and living for him. And that's worth dying for. If I made it up this week, it's not worth dying for. But it's Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And I can have confidence in that, and I can have boldness in that, and I can live that out today regardless of how crazy this world gets. And in history, there has been kings that have risen and fallen and nations come and go. And, and there's been cultures that grow and conquer and fall. But there's always been the church. Because the church has never lost sight of the foundational principles of truth that the church is built on. And the suffering that your family may go through today, as a parent wanting your child to come to the knowledge of Christ, it's these same principles that's going to reach them today, just like it did back then. And as a church, we celebrate these things. We hold these things tightly. We honor the traditions of what's been passed on to us. And we're going to care about those things that matter. What confidence that gives me. These truths that have made the church a witness in a dark world, in a suffering world, have been the truths that the church has been a light. And the church that holds true to this today is a church that's a witness in a world that needs a church that stands for truth.
And today we're part of the historical, victorious church. And it's our turn now to steward the truths of the gospel that have been passed on to us and to boldly proclaim to this generation and next that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray, God.